Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the Church of Ellerslie in lovely Windsor, Colorado. It is our hope and prayer that this message would convict, inspire, and invigorate your pursuit of the Lord Jesus Christ. We also want you to know that should you ever have any questions or comments regarding any of the ministries here at Ellerslie, we are always happy to provide answers and receive feedback. Simply contact us at info at ellerslie.com or give us a call at 970-686-9022. We really would love to hear from you. Enjoy the message and may your faith and love in Jesus grow larger as you listen. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. One of, one of the things my sister said to me um, growing up was that you can speak the truth, but if you don't speak it in the way Jesus would speak it, you're actually doing more harm than good, which is a fascinating statement. I just want you to ponder that because I think about that a lot, and that is truth that is absent of the nature of Jesus, who, by the way, is known as the truth. So truth that is absent the nature of the truth is actually not truth. It's the shell of truth. Any more than a seed without the inner pith would be called a seed because it's, yeah, it was a seed or it has the semblance of likeness to a seed, but it's missing something very critical, the pith, the life-generating substance within. And so as we talk about truth in our life, as we live truth in our life, as we testify of truth in our life, may our lives bear witness of the person of Jesus. You see, it's interesting, it's, the Holy Spirit's called the Spirit of Truth, and Jesus is the person of truth, or the man of truth. All the Bible is written by the Spirit of Truth to exemplify and to showcase the man of truth. And so if we're talking about the truth, we better have the Spirit of Truth, and what the end conclusion is, is a revelation of the man of truth. So if our communication of truth is not led and empowered by the Spirit of Truth, and it doesn't leave the residue and the understanding in our hearts and our minds and understanding of the person of truth, what have we accomplished? Was it really truth? And so that's the desire I have today, especially with this particular message, the love of Jonathan. Uh, There's some dangerous territory uh, we're messing with here, and yet to the pure, all things are pure. You see, David and Jonathan had a friendship that was dear and precious and is referred to in Scripture as beyond the love of women. In other words, here are two men that have a relationship that is beyond a typical love that is earthly. And that could be a tripping point for those in this culture. However, to the pure, all things are pure. And in this message, what you're going to see is a Christophany. You're going to see a picture of Jesus and those that give their life to serve Jesus. And it is a love that is beyond earthly love. It is beautiful, profound, and beyond anything any of us could ever dream or imagine. It is, in a sense, unthinkable. It is so far removed from our experience, and yet that's where God is calling us. And so this picture that we are going to embark upon is glorious and should not be a tripping point. The love of Jonathan. The heir apparent. Well, I almost called this message the heir apparent, but it didn't quite capture the overall enunciation of what this message is. 
But the heir apparent, I'll just read the definition, it's the obvious heir to the throne. And the key word is obvious, because that's what apparent means. It's apparent. It's obvious. So this is the heir. There is no question of who the heir is. It's, it's this guy. He's, he's the one in rightful succession to the kingdom. So there's a throne, and there's a king on that throne. And when that king dies, who's going to take the throne? Well, that's the heir apparent. It's the obvious heir to the throne. The one first in line of succession guaranteed the throne if he remains alive. So there could be an heir apparent, but what if that heir apparent dies before the king dies? Well, then no longer is he the heir apparent. You have to remain alive to be the heir apparent. And so the heir apparent is going to be a critical player in this story that we're going to tell today. And this is what's strange. It's you. Now, I'm going to be talking about a character in the Old Testament named Jonathan. And yet, you and Jonathan have a lot of similarities. And we'll go into that. So the key line is, if he remains alive. You know what the gospel calls us to do? Come and die. You see, there's a throne in your life, and you itch for that throne, the controls of your life. And technically, according to all practical observation, it's your throne. And that's what everyone tells you around you, too. The entire culture says, it's your throne. You're the heir apparent. You deserve it. Take it. You're in the lineage, the descendancy of the flesh, the old man. Take it. Take that throne. And so if you remain alive, guess what? It's your throne. However, the gospel, the very essence and center of it, is calling us to come and die. So the players in our story, Saul, the reigning king of Israel. Saul is the first king of Israel. Israel wanted to be like the other nations surrounding them. They wanted a king. Every cool nation has a king. And so Israel clamored for a king. God gave them a king. He gave them Saul. The first in God's order is always the one that can't please God. It's, and I'll go into this. It's, it's an extremely fascinating study throughout Scripture. If you hang out at Ellerslie, you hear it all the time. The first cannot please God. It's only the second that pleases God. And you see that in this story as well. So Saul is the reigning king of Israel. Now, there's something that has already happened by the time we're going to pick up our story, and that is that Saul has been rejected from being king of Israel. But I didn't put that in the definition yet. That's just going to come out and play out. But Saul is the reigning king of Israel from all outside observation. Who's the king of Israel? Well, it's Saul. However... There's a little piece of information that I want to pass on to you. He's been rejected. Someone else has actually been anointed to be king of Israel. However, according to all the natural, it doesn't look that way. So this is where Jonathan comes in. Jonathan is the son of Saul. He is the heir apparent. Now, I'm throwing a little curveball into this, and this is just how the word of God works. The word of God is actually giving us actual history in the Old Testament. However, the spirit of truth is carrying along the writers to reveal something. All of history is being carried along by the spirit of truth to reveal something, and that is the man of truth. So all of the Bible written by the spirit of truth is there to reveal the man of truth. Not just to give you some nice story in the Old Testament, but to show you something that actually pertains to the man of truth in your life. And in a sense, you get woven into the story of scripture unbeknownst to you. And there's a character who's the son of the reigning king of Israel, and his name is Jonathan. 
and he's the heir apparent. It's obvious to everyone in Israel who should take that throne. However, there's a piece of information that everyone in Israel needs to find out about, and that is that, well, Saul has been rejected. It is an unlawful claim to the throne that Saul has. And so what is Jonathan going to do when he finds this out? He's the heir apparent to an unlawful throne. So are you. You see, that throne is just sitting there for you to take. However, it's not your throne to take. And David. King David, shepherd boy David, you know, the guy that took down Goliath. He gets woven into a lot of my messages. But he is referred to in Scripture as the better man. You know that God is actually the one that calls him that? The better man. So Samuel said to him, and this is Samuel the prophet speaking to Saul, the first king of Israel, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. I don't know if you understand this dimension in your own life, but that throne is not for you to have. At the cross, the throne or the kingdom of your life was actually stripped from the old man, the controlling power of your life. And it looks as if there is still a throne available and you're the heir apparent. However, God has chosen a better man to fill that seat. The players. Now I'm going to go through this list again and I'm going to add some more detail to it. Saul, he's the rejected king. Now before I said he was the reigning king because that's what everyone sees. And in your life, it looks as if, doesn't it just make sense that you would control your life? I mean, it's just sitting there waiting for control, and you're the closest thing to it. I mean, your whole body's named after you. So why in the world wouldn't you take it? It almost just seems set up for you. And yet Saul is the rejected king. The Bible in the New Testament is going to enunciate how the body works. And so Paul goes into great detail to explain the principle of sin and how the body has gone awry. And that there is a throne or a control aspect of our life, and when we sit on it, we actually lead to a disintegration, a rebellion against the one who's supposed to sit on it. And so that's called the old man or the flesh. It's the principle of sin in our life, and that is the one who is rejected is thwunk, seated, where he's not supposed to be seated. And as a result, everything's going south in Israel. And the better man who is supposed to have that throne is not given it. And that when we live in rebellion, you know that Saul actually tried to kill David 21 times? 21 assassination attempts on this guy. You see, that's the way we are. We can act like we're pro-David. You notice that Saul is always, oh, I love David. Oh, David, great guy. Yeah, and then he throws his javelin at him. You see, this is the way we function. Oh yeah, Jesus, wonderful guy. And then we throw our javelin at him. You see, we do not want to give up control. We want to maintain our throne. That's the way Saul is. So Saul is the rejected king, the old man, the flesh. Now, I don't know if you've ever watched Leave it to Beaver, but uh, there's a guy named Eddie Haskell who's always talking about his old man. You guys know who an old man is? That's the dad, the father. And so this is a perfect illustration for it because who's Jonathan's old man? Saul. And so that's the old man. Who's your old man? The flesh. The old man is your old man. It's the principle of sin. It's your first life. Jesus says you must be born again. If you carry this first life, then it is not pleasing to God. God has rejected that first life. It is under condemnation. And so here we are hanging in the balance. We're Jonathan. We are the heir apparent to the throne, and if we follow what just seems totally normal, which is the old man in the flesh, 
We can control this kingdom. We'll be in control of our body. However, we would be inheriting a declining kingdom. Israel's going downhill and fast. We have no answer for Goliath when he stands in the valley of Elah and boasts. Saul does not have an answer. Your flesh, your old man, does not have an answer for the obstacles, the opposition that is coming against the kingdom. So where does Jonathan come out in this? So Saul, the rejected king, the old man, the flesh. Jonathan, you, self. You know, self is not your problem. That's you. It's self's position. When you are about self, and when self is in the center, self-centeredness is the principle of sin. But selflessness, where you take self and you deny it, and you bend the knee of self and acknowledge the rightful king, you're still there as a Christian. It's not that self dies and is eviscerated and is gone, and now you're watching your your body from a distance going, oh, I wonder what God's going to do with my body down there. You are still there. Self is you, but it's not self that is the problem. It's the position of self that poses the problem. Self must be denied and in the butler position with bent knee to serve the better man. And so you, self, the heir to the unlawful throne. You can take it. All of Israel would support you. That's what's so tempting about this. There doesn't seem to be any restriction or impediment. We can just take the throne. It's just sitting right there. And Jonathan could easily deny the fact that he knows that there's a better man, that he knows that David is there. He could take Saul's javelin after Saul dies and pin David to the wall with it. Maybe Saul wasn't very good with his accuracy, but Jonathan will get him. He could deny what he knows. You could deny what you know. There is a better man for the throne of your life. The old man has been rejected. It says that the old man was crucified with Christ. The old man was dealt with 2,000 years ago. Rejected, condemned. Justice has been served. You no longer need to be subservient to him. So Jonathan, are you willing to step away from Saul's kingdom and side with the better man? David, the rightful king. That's who he is also known as Jesus Christ. You see, this is a Christophany, this whole picture. You know, the Bible covers such a grand landscape of history. And yet, if you go through the the stories of history, you'll notice that God goes really fast over certain stories. And some people's lives are, and they reigned 27 years and died. That's it. That's all God says. And then you have stories where God slows down the camera slows down all the movement and goes into great detail and quotations that come out of people's mouths when they're in private. I mean, you know every granular detail. David's life is slowed down. Everything up to this point is pretty fast. I'm not saying that Genesis doesn't have some slow moving points. However, as it comes through the lineage from all the way from Joshua through Judges that we're moving pretty quick, just with some highlights. And then when we get to Saul and David, everything slows down. And we have a Christophany. There's a picture that is being set of a first and a second. The first life and how it handles Israel, or we call it the body. How it handles the church. It's rejected. It does not heed the word of God. It does not submit. And as a result, it holds on to its position, even though God says, get off that throne and give it to the better man. No. And as a result, Saul dies. And yet, we find ourselves in this in-between position of choosing our king. You see, in our blood, we are related to Saul. 
We are of the lineage of Adam or the lineage of the old man. And I could take this life. This life could be mine and we could justify it. And most people around us would pat us on the back and say, good for you. Most Christians would pat us on the back and say, good for you. That's what makes it extra hard. All of Israel seems to be aiming towards, take your position, Jonathan. Take it. Take it. It's sitting there. You're the heir apparent. The bait, the temptation is so great for us to follow in the path of the old man, to follow in the path of Adam. And yet we see the better man. And it's the strangest thing. But we love him. What is wrong with Jonathan? Most of us don't realize that Jonathan, when he covenanted with David, was covenanting to his own harm. He was giving up his own future. Most of us don't see it that way. We don't realize that he had everything to give up. And he is covenanting with the rejected man of Israel. The entire military forces of Saul are aimed to destroy this man. And Jonathan sides with him and says, if you go after him, I guess you're going after me too. It's the heir apparent. Comfort is in his future. Security, palaces, down pillows. And he forsakes it? What's wrong with this guy? What's wrong with us? Because that's what we are called to do. We're Christians. We live in the age of Saul and David. David is the rightful king. It's, it soon will be proven that he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. However, the unlawful king is still ruling down here. The prince of the power of the air still acts like this is his territory. However, it has been gained by the king. And yet this is a season of hiding in caves, a season of persecution, where those that side with the rightful king live in persecution and suffering. 21 assassination attempts on David. What? Almost 2,100 years of assassination, assassination attempts on Christians. We live in the season of persecution. Who sides with David? That's the question. Yeah, you could go with Saul. That's the easy way. And there's a harder way, and it stares us all in the face. Most of us in here, we know who the rightful king is. The question is, are we willing to follow him? Jonathan must choose. Oh, that's painful. The old man Saul or the better man David? Old man, oh, there's comforts, there's security, there's pleasures. There's land, there's power, there's control. David... The better man, there's a cave, cold nights, rejection, persecution, hunted, despised. Who would, who's going to choose this? And all of us in here raise our hands and say, I don't know what's wrong with me, but I'm sort of like that too. I chose that. What, what am I doing? You know what you're doing. You're not choosing it because of the discomfort. It's not like that's what woos us. It's like, oh, a cave? Oh, yeah. Cold nights? Oh, that's what I want. What draws us is the one in the cave. We are captured by the beloved David. You know what David's name means? His, his name, Dehoved. Ahava in the Hebrew is the word for love. You stick a duh on either end of it. Dehoved. And you have Dehoved. You have David. That's what his name means. The loved one. The man to love. The beloved not an amazing name. That's what calls us to the cave. Yonathan. Yo is the shortened name for Jehovah. 
And so it's like Jehovah Nathan, Yonathan, Jonathan. That's where it comes from. And so we have Jehovah plus the word Nathan or Nathan, which is, means to give, to appoint, to set, to establish, and to permit. So imagine that you're Jonathan. And you're like, but God, I have the rightful lineage. I am of the bloodline to be the king. And what does his name even mean? So let's, let's walk through this. The divine conversation between God and Jonathan. Jonathan, it is I, Jehovah, that appoints. You see, Saul is claiming to be the king. However, Jonathan, it is I that appoints. That's what his name even means. Ironically, the son of Saul is actually, hey, hey, guys, God appoints the king, not Saul. Saul actually isn't the one that's going to define this. I have chosen a better man. Jonathan, it is I, the Lord. The Lord in all caps is the same as Jehovah in the Old Testament. It is I, the Lord, that gives power to rule. That's what his name means. It is God that gives this. It is God that appoints the kings of the earth. Jonathan, it is I, Yahweh, that establishes kings. It is God who appoints, who gives, who establishes. That's actually what the name Jonathan means. Jonathan, I am. That's the other name for Jehovah. That's what God said at the burning bush. I am that I am. That's the name Jehovah. Jonathan, I am the kingmaker. I am, says God. See, Jonathan could say, but I'm in line. I'm in succession. I'm the heir apparent. Jonathan, listen to me. I am the kingmaker. I've rejected Saul. I've rejected your old man. Leave that kingdom. Repent. Turn to the better man. I have chosen the rightful king for Israel. Jonathan, David is the one I have set in charge. So we all need to understand Jonathan. God has appointed. God has made the king. God has set his decree. God has made sure that we would hear it and know it. You are not that king. Your old man is not that ruler. The better man, Jesus Christ, is. It's the second. Jesus is called the second man. Isn't that an amazing name for him? He's called the last Adam. So you have Adam, the first. You have the last Adam, the second man. Jesus is the second. He's the better man. This is a Christophany in the Old Testament. Saul is the first. David is the second. It is the second that God has appointed. Jonathan. That's what his name even means. God has rejected the first. He has. That's what it says all throughout the Bible too. The first and the second, the biblical pattern. Cain, Abel. God rejected the first. Remember the offering of Cain? God says, no. And Abel, the second offering, he receives. Isn't that amazing? Ishmael, Isaac. I mean, Ishmael, what's wrong with him? And God says, Ishmael cannot stand before me. God rejects it, Ishmael. It was a product of self-effort. It wasn't a product of God. And as a result, God rejects the first and accepts Isaac, the second. Esau, Jacob, who came out of the womb first? Esau, hairy all over. God rejects Esau. And chooses Jacob, also known as Israel. Israel is the second. You know the descendants of Esau are called Amalek. They're the Amalekites. And in the Bible it says Amalek is the first nation. Well, what's the second nation? 
Israel, the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of heaven will rule over the first nation, which is the flesh. The flesh and the spirit. This is the first and the second. You are all born in the flesh, but you must be born again of the spirit. And when you are born again, now it's the spirit of God that rules over you. And your throne is now ruled by the better man. Leah, the first wife of Jacob, has Reuben, who's actually the firstborn of all Jacob's sons. However, Reuben isn't truly the leader of the 12. It's the second wife, Rachel, that gives birth to Joseph, and it's the second wife's son that rules over the 12 tribes. Everything comes under Joseph. Manasseh and Ephraim. So now we have the sons of Joseph. And God actually hallmarks that Ephraim will be over Manasseh. He chooses the second. Saul, David, old covenant, new covenant. Which one saves? Which one does God say, that's the one that pleases me? When you keep the old covenant, you're under law, it cannot please God. But when you come under the new covenant in his blood, you please God because you're now clothed in his work. Adam, Jesus, First birth of water, second birth of spirit. Old man, flesh, new man, spirit. So it says in Hebrews 10, 9, he takes away the first that he may establish the second. He takes away Saul. This is me adding some parenthetical statements. He takes away Saul that he may establish David. He takes away your old man that he may establish the better man in your life. He takes away your fleshly life so that he can establish his spirit, his control over your life. 1 Corinthians 15, and it is also written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. Now, I emphasize the first so you wouldn't miss it. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first. So that which is of the spirit is not the first, but, that, but the natural. So the flesh or that which is born of earth is the first. Then the spiritual, the first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. It's the second one that comes down from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. As is Saul, so are those that come from Saul, that serve Saul. Saul is rejected, and anyone that follows him will be rejected. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, so Jonathan... Just as you have borne the image of the old man, in fact, you even sort of look like Saul, but just as you have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. So Jonathan, just as you have borne the likeness to Saul, you will, as you serve David, bear the likeness of David. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood, or the first, cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So here's a statement, it's, it's quoted from the Proverbs. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The proud is the first, the humble is the second. God resists those that are strong in the natural realm of the flesh, in their own goodness, in their own strength. He rejects it, but he gives grace to the second man, to the humble. That which God receives. God resists the first, but gives grace to the second. God resists the flesh, but gives grace to the spirit. God resists the throne claimers, but gives grace to the throne yielders. What's Saul? He's a throne claimer. Mine. This is my life. This is my throne. I'm going to sit here, and I don't care what God says. Well, how are you responding? 
Because God has said, get down from that throne. Deny self. Pick up your cross and follow him. Unless you come and die, you cannot live. Unless you yield up that throne, you will not understand what you were built for. What you were even here on earth for, and that is to allow Jesus Christ his rightful position. The better man must come in. So are you a throne claimer or a throne yielder? The first, we'll call them the proud, the throne claimers. The second, we'll call them the humble, the throne yielders. Which one did Jonathan prove to be? He was a throne yielder. He was the second. And as a result, he entered into covenant with David. The love of Jonathan, loving the one God has chosen. God has chosen Jesus. God has chosen the better man to rule your life. Jonathan accepted that. His very name means Jehovah has chosen. Jehovah has given. Jehovah has appointed. Jehovah has established. And he submitted to that. And he submitted to the one God had chosen. Ironically, he's older than David. From all that we can see in Scripture, Jonathan would, I mean, I don't know that I could say that he'd be a dad age to David, but he was significantly older. Could you imagine how awkward this would be? To be the rightful heir to the throne, and you have this young guy down there. And God says, yeah, I've chosen him. I've rejected your dad, which means I've technically rejected you of following in the lineage and sitting on that throne. Are you willing to agree with my decree? Are you willing to agree with my appointments? Well, God, that would mean, yes. That would mean you may be penniless. That means you are no greater than the common man of Israel. Would you be willing to submit to my choice? He gave up everything to submit to the choice of God. The covenant with the better man. This is an extremely fascinating collection of scriptures because this is a huge story in scripture. So I've consolidated it. You see it in 1 Samuel 18, 19, and 20. And so the, the ellipses, the dot, dot, dots between them are just sort of our connective tissue. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. Now listen to this very closely because as I said before, this is a Christophany. This is a picture of the relationship we have with Christ. We have an old man, but God is calling us away and he's saying, look, Jonathan, I've appointed a better man. Will you submit? You see who that better man is, don't you? I do. It's Jesus. That's right, because I've revealed that to you. Will you submit to him? Well, God, that means I have to give up my life. I I have talents. I have abilities. I I have things that I want to do in this life. Yeah. Are you willing to give that up to serve me, to follow me? So the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul and Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, even to his sword and his bow and his belt. Now we're going to go back to this. This is actually a symbol of covenant. A covenant is an exchange where you actually give of things of your own life in exchange for something. Now Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants. Now this is Saul, the old man, talking. Okay, well, how do you think the old man feels about this? You see, he has it in for David. Your old life, your flesh, if you listen to that voice, it will counsel you to kill David. It will. You cannot go with God and keep the old man. You can't. You can't have a second life. You can't be born again and still linger in your first life. 
You have to say goodbye and repent of that first life. And you need to live for the better man. So now Saul, remember the old man, the rejected king, spoke to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted greatly in David. So Jonathan told David, saying, my father Saul seeks to kill you. Doesn't that sound like a discussion inside of our soul? Uh, Jesus, I, I, I have this propensity in me to go against your word. Uh, there's like, my old man is counseling me to say no to your word and to rebel and actually harm you. But I love you and I want to serve you. Doesn't that sound like the tension that we deal with? My father Saul seeks to kill you. Therefore, please be on your guard until morning and stay in a secret place and hide. So Jonathan said to David, whatever you yourself desire, I will do it for you. What a statement. He is literally going against the ruling power in Israel, Saul. He's going against, he's saying, whatever you ask, I will do it for you. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, let the Lord require it at the hand of David's enemies. So Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger. Now there's different events that are taking place. I'm just consolidating. And ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David. You see, he cared deeply. When he sees Saul conspiring to kill him, he is grieved. He gives up the pleasures of this world because his father had treated him shamefully. Are you grieved that your old man has treated Jesus shamefully? Are you grieved when you look into this earth and you see how the rightful king of kings is being treated? Or do you not care at all? You see, Jonathan left everything. He forsook his position to serve the better man. The making and affirming of covenant. So in 1 Samuel 18, 3, it says, Then Jonathan and David made a covenant, because he loved him as his own soul. And in chapter 20, so Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David. Now, you're going to notice, I should have made it big. Covenant is the key operative word. Now, Jonathan, again, caused David to vow. A covenant is made up of a vow, like a marriage covenant, for instance, and we exchange vows. A marriage covenant is a symbol of a covenant that we have with Jesus Christ. It is merely a foreshadow where you are literally exchanging. You're exchanging something. You're exchanging lives. You're exchanging names. You're exchanging rings, exchanging vows, now, Jonathan again caused David to vow because he loved him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. And then in chapter 23, so the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. So it's sort of hard to miss it. David and Jonathan made a covenant. You're Jonathan. You're Jonathan in this story. And you're being wooed away from your position. Your long-held expectations, but I could be king I could rule this body. I have plans. I have agendas. I have thoughts of what I could do with this life. And God says, but you're Jonathan, which means Jehovah has appointed, and I've appointed Jesus to rule your life. Well, what does he have in store? Is he, are his dreams in alignment with mine? Because if they're like mine, then I'm, I'm open to this. But what if they go in a different direction? And God could say, what if? Are you willing to follow the better man? Are you going to choose Saul over David? You're going to choose your heir apparency? Are you going to try and ascend to a throne that is unlawful? Or are you willing to agree with the word of God, with Jesus Christ? Set down your agenda, bend your knee, and allow the better man to rule your life. 
the exchange. A covenant is a very, very serious thing. There are certain aspects of the Christian life which are rejoicing, celebratory, shout, do a little jig with your leg. You know, there's various things that are just so full of joy. Now, this is, a covenant is, like a marriage, it is. And you will chuckle and laugh and clap in weddings. But there are certain points in weddings which are very, very serious. And that is the exchange of covenant. All the witnesses stand present. And they are there to hold something. And they hold it sacred because there is an exchange going on and they witness it. This is till death part us. This is, no matter the circumstances, there is nothing that can sever this. This is binding before God. When you enter into a covenant, you do not step out of a covenant. You are in a covenant. The Native Americans held covenant so seriously that if anyone ever violated covenant, they would hunt down the entire family of that person and slaughter them. And it was something like for four generations afterwards. If anyone survived, they were on the covenant breaking list and they're dead. No one violates covenant. I don't think we have the same concept of covenant. For most of us, when we enter into a marriage, we call it a contract. And a contract has stipulations, and if someone violates that, well, guess what? You're like, yeah, you violated the contract, I'm out. And we're not talking about a contract here. We're talking about a covenant. And what's extra amazing is I'm not just talking about marriage here. Marriage is a shadow. Marriage is a small type of what we're talking about. We're talking about entering into a covenant a binding agreement with the God of the universe. And when you do, you don't wake up the next day and change your mind. You've already chosen your side, and you are on that side. When you enter into a covenant, you enter into a covenant. That's why we don't just head off to Las Vegas and find the first character that's nearby to enter into covenant. In other words, we understand the seriousness of what we are doing. Or do we understand the seriousness of what we're doing? When we come to Jesus Christ, do we understand what we're doing? I don't think most of us do. Which is why when we finish today and we have a covenant meal, we'll gulp a few times before we take it. In other words, do we understand what we are saying? And all the heavens will hold us accountable to our declarations today. Oh, the exchange. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, even to his sword and his bow and his belt. Now, there are different forms of covenants that we see in the Bible. And like one of the covenants uh, would be an exchange of blood, for instance. It was like the Native Americans would have called it the blood brother. But they actually had a very similar thing in the, the Hebrew culture because covenant, one of the concepts of covenant is cutting seems really strange. What would cutting have to do with anything? However, it's like the incision, because when blood is shed, it seals it. And of course, the new covenant in his blood, there was a shedding of blood to establish the covenant. The Abrahamic covenant had a shedding of blood. And so what we see are these covenants throughout history, and they involve a cutting, a shedding of blood. And so in the Hebrew culture, there was the understanding, and this is just the oriental culture actually at the time, that if you were entering into covenant with someone, you would slit your body, and maybe it's like even in your wrist area, and you would slit it, and sometimes there would be a commingling of blood. But the statement was, then there would, there would be a scar that would develop there. 
And it could be a symbol, as far as cutting a symbol, but that's, that isn't necessary. But say someone comes to attack my life. All I have to do is show them the scar. What would that tell them? I'm in covenant. That means if you touch me, someone is bound to hunt you down and kill you. That's literally what it would mean. I'm in, I'm in covenant, guys. You know that we are in covenant as Christians? We have the blood of Christ on us. We have a shield of faith. It's like when someone comes to us, we're not marked by an external circumcision, but a circumcision of the heart. Our life is symbolized by a love commitment unto our covenanter. And when anyone sees us, it's the equivalent of you touch them. They're a Christian. You mess with the God that built them, the God who died for them. Whoa, I don't want to mess with him. That's right. We're Christians. We're under the blood of Jesus. We are sealed in covenant. So what we see is a series of things that Jonathan is taking off, and he's giving it to David. The four sacred elements of exchange. So in this story, I want you to be Jonathan. I want you to be the one who is now saying, God has appointed. God has given him authority. God has made David king. God has made, for our sakes, Jesus king. And so you have four things. And I want you to consider today giving those four things to Jesus Christ just as Jonathan gave them to David. Number one, robe. A robe would be a symbol of authority, position, name, and reputation. And so Jonathan is literally willing to give up his authority. Does he have any authority in Israel? You better believe it, he does. He's willing to give up his position. Does he have position in Israel? Oh, yeah. Name. Does he have a name in Israel? Uh-huh. How about his good reputation? Are you willing to give up all these things? That, that's a pretty deep cut. You see, what we don't oftentimes see when we are entering into covenant is that it's two-sided. Most of us are staring at that and we're like, this is too extreme. Who invited me to this church? And what we don't realize is that there's another side. God's asking Jonathan, but did you know that what David has to give? David is going to give his authority. He's going to give his position. He's going to give his name. And he's going to give his good reputation with the Father. Uh, (laughs) Who's getting the short end of the stick here? What are you giving up? Oh, wow. Very impressive. You're an earthly, diddly squat life. And you're like, hey, what would you just call it? Diddly squat? I, I have an important life. I'm someone here on this earth. Yeah, we're talking about the God of the universe is extending out his hand saying, will you enter into covenant with me? The better man, and that's not an exaggeration, the far better man, the so far better man that it's, you know, incalculable, mathematically impossible for us to even comprehend how much better. He is not just better, he's better, better, better. He's holy, holy, holy. He's pure, pure, pure. He's righteous, righteous, righteous. He's good, good, good. He is the trifold better. He is so far beyond us. And he's coming down and condescending to say, I choose you to enter into covenant with me. But will you choose me to be the better man in your life? Robe, authority, position, name, reputation. Garments, possessions, inheritance. Sword and bow, protection, preservation, watchful eye of defense, 
Girdle, enabling power, quickening strength. That's like a belt. Luke 22. And when the hour was come, he sat down. And the twelve apostles with him. This is talking about Jesus. And he said unto them, With desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say unto you, I will not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. And he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave unto them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. He's not just taking a robe. He's not just taking a girdle and a sword. He's given his life. He's giving everything, his very body and his blood. He's giving up everything. And he's entering into covenant. By the way, this is a covenant meal. You know, it's interesting. In the Hebrew culture, when a man proposed to his bride, he would set a glass of wine in front of them. And if they drank the wine, they were entering into covenant. Isn't that interesting? Jesus actually removes his outer garment, bends his knee, and washes his bride's feet before he enters into covenant. He takes the low place and says, my life for yours. You see, we hold on to our life. It's like, it's so dear. My life. And Jesus says, you can hold on to your life and you'll lose it if you do. Or you can give it up and I'll give you mine. But it's an exchange. If you keep your hand wrapped around your things, you'll never get his things. And he's the only one who can bring you life. He's the only one that can bring you salvation. He's the only one that can bring you hope, truth. And so when we hold on to these things like mine, we die. We die in an attempt to find a vapor of life this side of heaven. But when we let go of our life, say, God, I'm willing to give up my life, we get his life. Uh, by the way, if you've never tasted his life, it's good. It's trifold good. It's better, better, better. It's the better life. It is eternal. It never ceases. It is an endless life, which means it cannot be put out. It is like that... Uh, that candle that burns and you stick it in the depths of the ocean and it still burns. It cannot be put out. When you enter into that life, it is unquenchable, indissoluble, unstoppable. And you're holding on to your life? So this is my body which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. Likewise also the cup after supper saying this, is the, the, the cu this cup is the New Testament, the New Covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. So in Isaiah 61, we have a foreshadow of this covenant. It says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. Now remember what Jonathan did. He took off his robe, took off his garments, took off his belt. He took off his clothing. Follow me. We are called to put off our old life. To put off, it actually says, put off your old man and his deeds and put on Christ. We are to exchange, I know it sounds strange, but we give up our robe, our garments, our belts, our sword and bow. We hand it to Jesus as if he has it. What's he going to do with it? What's he going to do with that junk? He's going to cast it away and he's going to don us. He's going to clothe us in himself. It says, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. This is the covenant. He hath covered me with the robe, 
We are covered with a robe, not of our own righteousness, of his righteousness. For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. It's an exchange. He took our position. He took our robe. He did it. He took the condemnation and the judgment that was going to fall upon our old man. He took that upon himself, and he bore our robe that we could bear his. He bore our punishment, just punishment, that we might have redemption, that we might have salvation, that we might have a reward that we are wholly undeserving of. He asks for everything. I know that sounds like a lot. It is. It's everything. Isn't that a hard word? I mean, if it's just like Sunday mornings, God asks for it. It's like, ooh, that's tough. If it's just 10% of our income, it's like, ee, 10%, wow. That's a lot. But he doesn't just ask for 10%. He doesn't just ask for Sunday mornings, Wednesday nights. He asks for <clears throat> everything. God, well, that's everything I have. I know. You see, unless you give up everything, you can't have him. I think I, I gave you this illustration a few weeks ago, but remember the ivory wall? The unscalable wall. It goes millions of miles up, millions of miles into the ground, just in case you're thinking of burrowing underneath it. It goes millions of miles this way, millions of miles this way, and I could say 10 billion, 10 billion, 10 billion, 10 billion, but then I could just say, well, I might as well say trillions of miles. You can't get around it. Let's just put it that way. You can't dig under it, can't climb over it. You can't walk around it. It's an impassable barrier. On the other side is the kingdom of heaven. Whoa. That sort of leaves us out, doesn't it? Well, it looks like that. However, there's a little hole. It's the very bottom. Sort of like a mouse hole. If you've ever seen like Tom and Jerry, you know, Jerry's mouse hole. It's like a little mouse hole and it's just big enough for you to slide through. But to slide through, did you know that you can't have anything on you? You have to take it all off. That's the only way you can fit through there. Some of you are like, well, I just need my pocket knife. No, it, it'll, it'll jam in there and you'll get stuck. You have to let it all go. But... And you could say, well, then I wouldn't have anything. You know what's waiting for you on the other side? Why are you worried about what you're giving up? Don't you know what he has for you? He has clothing over there. You thought your little pocket knife was something special. Wait till you see his. <laughs> Why in the world do we hold on to this stuff? And we stand on the outside wanting in, but refusing to come in on his terms. God, let's negotiate here. We're all lawyers saying, oh, come on, God. I have given you more than all these other people around me. Are you willing to give everything? Are you willing to come and die? You see, when you die, you don't have anything. A dead man isn't worried about his bank accounts. It's just a fact. A dead man isn't worried about all the things that all of us are worried about. He's dead to it. There is no more of a burden for the things of this earth when you die. Are you willing to come and die so that you can truly live? He asks for everything. Our robe. He's asking for our position, our name, our fame, and authority in exchange for his. You see, we want to be the ones on the throne. We want to be the ones in control. Some of us have a reputation, and we have an image. We have, you know, a, a walk, a talk. People like us. Are you willing to let that go? Are you willing to simply be nothing more than what Jesus makes you? 
Will you give up your reputation, willing to be deemed a fanatic and a fool? Will you surrender your name and allow it to be swallowed up in his name? No longer will anything be about you, but your life from this day forward will be about him and his glory. You ever heard the story of the branch? There's a branch from a, uh, a grape uh, plant, a grape vine, that's just like hanging out on the side of the road over there, and it's dead. It's not bearing any fruit. It's you, it's me. Is it impressive? No, it's good for nothing but the burn pile. And one day that branch hears this incredible news that if it gives up its life and its identity, it can be grafted into the vine and actually bear fruit and be what it was supposed to be. It's given a second chance, a second life. You see, it could remain there, dead. However, when it's dead and on the side of the road, people see it. And you sort of wave at them as they pass by with your dead leaf. And you're like, hey. And they're like, wow, nice dead branch. But when everyone else is dead, then we're competing to be good dead branches. Who's the coolest dead branch? That's what we do. It's a competition of the coolest dead branch. This dead branch has like sunglasses and some tattoos all over it over here. It's like, what a cool dead branch. And yet, are you willing as a branch to give up your identity and be grafted in to his? You know when a branch is grafted in, no longer do you see the branch, you see the vine. That branch gets lost in the rest of the vine. Now it's no longer about the individual branch. It's about the vine. Are you willing to give that up? It's always been about you, but no longer when you come to Jesus. Will you give up position, fame, and worldly authority in order to become royalty in his kingdom? Our garments, our earthly possessions, and our corruptible inheritance in exchange for the eternal treasure of the kingdom. Boy, it's really hard when God touches the things that we own and we possess. I, for some of us, different ones on this list are going to be harder than others. I'm not exactly sure how we all tick, but these are our things. This is us. This is our life. And that's why it's so amazing that Jonathan takes them off willingly. His soul is knit to the soul of David. He says, take it. Take it all. And he enters into covenant with him. Will you relinquish everything you possess for him? Everything? Yeah. You know what's interesting is God's not against possession. He's against you being possessed by the possessions. You see, if he holds your life and he holds all the possessions, it's like Abraham. Abraham was poor in spirit, and yet he was a man that started a nation. There's nothing wrong with a possession. It's that the possession cannot hold you. And if any point in time when God touches your possessions, you say, no, well, that shows you that your possessions hold you. You think you're holding your possessions, but they're holding you. Will you relinquish everything you possess for him? Will you give up the applause of men, the security of financial stability, even the comforts of a self-indulgent existence? Will you give him your health, your wealth, your every material thing for him to do with as he sees fit? What? God, that's my health. You know what Paul lived a rather challenging life? Oh, he was full of joy. Have you ever read the book of Philippians? Rejoice! He's in prison. Rejoice! And he's like, will you be willing to give up your health to him? Well, what about, I, I thought he's the healer. Well, he is. Are you willing to give up your body to him and let it be spent the way Paul's body was spent for Jesus Christ? Are you willing to give up your body the way Jesus did to his father and let your body be spent the way Jesus' body was spent for the father? See, that's the pattern. Oh, God will keep you healthy to do it. He will keep you around to die on a cross. He'll keep you around to be stoned. I know it sounds funny. It sounds like I'm making a bad statement about God. 
God will not waste one drop of his saint's blood, ever. However, he will spend us, just as he did his dear son, for his glory and honor and praise. There's a hostile world in which we live, and the blood of the martyrs throughout the ages has been the seed of the church. When we are willing to give up our bodies and say, God, you spend me as you see fit. We don't begrudge it. We don't complain about it. But this is a temporal dwelling. All things are made new, right? You know what? There's one thing that is still old in this world, and that's our first body. We still are lingering in it. And you want a second body? Well, let God take the first one away. And you're going to get your second body. And that one is incorruptible. However, we're new men and women running around in old bodies. God's going to keep those things running for his purpose. But are we willing to give them over to him? Say, God, you spend it as you see fit. Your wealth, your every material thing for him to do with as he sees fit. Our sword and bow, that's our human defense in exchange for his almighty defense. Will you let down your defenses and allow him to remodel your life? It's funny because there's two ways of approaching God. One is, God, um, so search me, try me, know me, uh, do whatever you want in me. But we're like guarded and we're plugging our ears. God, did you have anything to say on that matter? We actually aren't interested. Have you ever caught yourself saying the right things to God, but recognizing your disposition, your posture, your folded arms, or your plugged ears are sort of giving away the fact that you're actually not interested in knowing? Are you willing to open up your arms? Sort of hard to do with a microphone. Into cross position. Cross position is willing to receive. God, take me to the cross. I want that old man out of the way, and I want to give you, as Jonathan did. You know, Jesus was stripped. Everything was given. Everything was given to us. That's the symbol of covenant. Stripped naked so that we could be clothed. Open, receptive position to the Father. Are we willing to enter the same position? Give up everything. Be stripped naked so that he receives our all. Will you allow him to discipline you, convict you, transform you into something that this world will reject, revile, and crucify? God, I'd sort of like to live to an old age and see my grandkids, my great-grandkids, my great-great-grandkids. While I'm at it, might as well ask for that. Are you willing to give that dream up? To live as Christ. It's wonderful to see great-great-grandkids. I never have, but I've heard to live as Christ, to live is to see great-great-grandkids, to know Jesus, know the power of his resurrection in these mortal bodies. However, to die is advantage. To die is gain. It's even better. Will you surrender to him your self-preservation in exchange for his preservation of your existence on planet Earth? You never notice how many of us are self-preserving? The whole while saying, God, I trust you. God, I, I, I trust you. How's my insurance policy doing? Am I covered in that area? You see, God is our preserver. Where do you put your confidence? If your confidence is in an insurance policy, something's wrong inside of your Christianity. Your confidence needs to be in Jesus Christ. He is your preserver. The earth and the sky can melt away. If you're fixed to the rock, you fear nothing. You know that even insurance can go belly up? That isn't where our confidence lies. Do not put it in gold. Do not put it in a bank account. Do not put it in medicine. Put it in Jehovah, the one who cannot change, never will change. Will you allow him to use your life to fight his battles rather than your own self-aggrandizing battles? You know, there are times when you're going to want to stand up for yourself and fight your battles. 
False accusation is a wonderful moment for that. Hey, what, what did you just say? Take that back. Are you willing to fight his battles? Jesus went to the cross fighting God's battles, not the battles of the flesh. And he was silent as a lamb unto slaughter so that he could tear down all the powers of hell. Are we willing to give up our battles? That's hard, I know, because the first thought you have is, well, who's going to fight them for me? Don't worry. You have a protector. You know that Mary, Mary is accused twice. Martha rails on her saying, hey, Jesus, tell her to get to work here. What is she doing? She's sitting at his feet. And then remember Judas, hey, she's wasting the spike nard. You know that in both situations, Mary said nothing. She didn't fight her battle. You know who spoke for her? Jesus did. It's an amazing picture of covenant. Our belt, or for those of you that really like the old English, our girdle. Isn't that awkward? Our belt, that makes it feel a little more manly. Our ability to perform in exchange for his enabling power and quickening grace. Some of you are very talented. Some of you have strengths and abilities in various areas, and people have complimented you and said, oh, boy, you're really talented in that area. And as a result, your propensity is to lean on your ability, your ability to perform. Are you willing to give that up? It's your talents. Are talents bad? No. Any more than robes and clothing, swords. Nothing of this stuff's bad. It's just he needs it. You see, he's going to take your life, and he's going to fill it, and he's going to use it. If he's going to use a talent, it's not going to be you using it. It's going to be him using it. And so as a result, give it to him. Give him your life. Will you allow him to break you? Oh, what does that mean? Will you surrender to him your self-derived strength so that he may replace it with his own heavenly version of world-altering power? I don't know how many of you have ever heard me testify in the realm of speaking. I, I was always told growing up that I had a gift of communication. And as a result, I leaned on my own strength. And God brought me to the end of me in that arena. I used to teach public speaking at very high levels too. And I would teach professionals how to speak. And now I violate almost every single thing I taught. The way I communicate now goes directly against everything I would have taught of how to win an audience, how to curry favor, how to cause people to like you. What is it? Win friends and influence people. Now the book could be written, don't do what Eric does. And it would be accurate. I would tell you that. Well, if you're wanting to please the world, don't speak like I speak. Even the way I'm speaking to you guys today, it's too authoritative. It sounds too strong. It's opinionated. It's judgmental and condemning because it's making people feel uncomfortable and convicted. Don't do that. You want people to feel good about themselves. (laughs) And here I am putting you in the exact opposite position. I'm violating all the rules. God may appear to be violating all the rules, but he brings life. You want to give life to people? Start violating the rules of this culture and just doing what the Spirit of God is asking you to do. When you go to a a social gathering and someone has their arms folded in the corner, that is a statement in this world's natural law to saying, leave them alone. I don't want to talk to anyone. However, it's called social grace to be sensitive to them. But then there's something known as Christ's grace, which will violate that. And God speaks to the Christian and says, that man over there. What, the one with his arms folded? I mean, God, that's, I mean, he's folding his arms for a reason. That one, pursue him. 
He is praying right now. Have you ever noticed that these people could be praying right now? God, if you're real, send someone to me. No one, no one cares. You have to violate what the natural world is saying to you. Bypass that and say, hi. I realize your arm's folded. You probably don't want to talk with me, but would you mind if I talk with you? Well, I don't know. What would you want to talk to me about? About your soul. It's called Christ grace. Don't buy social grace as the norm. Are you willing to surrender your self-derived strength, your, even your sense of social grace, so that he may replace it with his own heavenly version of world-altering power? Christ grace. You see, preaching on street corners, sharing the gospel is politically incorrect. It just is. Leave people alone is what the world will tell you. Don't violate their personal space with your beliefs, your dogmatic ideas. And yet, if you do nothing, they die. You can't buy the systems of this world. You cannot follow political correctness and truly please Jesus Christ. You have to buck it. Now, don't just buck it and make a stink and make noise just to offend people. You follow the Spirit of God and say, God, Use this life, and you're marked by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Will you give him the privilege of keeping you dependent so that he might prove his might in and through your life? Will you allow him the privilege of showcasing his glory to this world through your existence? He asks for everything, yes. But remember, he gives us everything that could possibly matter in return. God's getting a handful of pebbles. You're getting a truckload of priceless jewels. God's getting the pebbles. You're getting him. Let's just remember, in this covenant exchange, we are the ones that are truly benefiting. He is giving up everything. He could have just kept it all to himself. But for whatever reason, he loved us. And he sought us out. He came to seek and save that which was lost. We were the lamb that was caught, the one that was caught in the brambly bush. And the shepherd came out of his way and reached in, shedding his own blood, being cut as he was doing it, and pulls us out so that we could be his possession. And what's our response to that? Leave me alone, God. I want to be my own sheep. I'll handle the wolves on my own. If I want to be caught in a brambly bush, that's my business. But get your hands off of me. Oh, no. Don't do that. He's come to seek and save you. He's come to rescue. He's shed his own blood to gain you. And now he says, I just need your life. I need you to relinquish the controls you're holding on. Oh, Jonathan, do you not know that I've chosen one better to rule your life? Will you let me have the throne that you have always perceived was yours? The covenant exchange, trading robes. He took on my sin that I may take on his righteousness. We are clothed in the old man. We are clothed in a robe known as Adam. We are in Adam. You know what the New Testament is all about? Being in Adam. Christ. However, we can't just be in Christ, in his righteousness, in his life, in his truth, in his purity, in his perfection, in his work. It has to be open to us, which is what happened on the cross. It's a new covenant that was made available to us. And so what God says is, 
will you take off your robe? My Adam? This is a special stitched robe. I've inherited it from my father and inherited it from his father. I mean, this is, a, this is an heirloom. You stay in it and you get the destiny of Adam. You stay in it and you get the reward of the firstborn, which is death. The wages of wearing that robe is death. You see, Eric, I'm willing to take on your robe and exchange positions with you so that you could have my robe. Who would hang on to their robe with such a deal on the table? And yet how many of us do put off the old man and his deeds, put on Christ and live? He took on my curse, my punishment, that I may take on his liberty. He took on my separation, you could call it death, that I may take on his sonship. He took on my shame that I may take on his favor and bear his glory. He took on my sorrows that I may take on his joy. He took on my sufferings that I may take on his comfort. He took on my Adam position that I may take on his kingly position. He took on my poverty that I may take on his inheritance. And even now he takes on my body and wears it as his own. This is an amazing truth. And I take on his body and am seated in heavenly places at the right hand of the Father in the person of Christ. He takes on my body. This body becomes his clothing. I enter into his robe. And now he moves into my body and calls it his. He is taken on my body. And where does he stick me? He sticks me in his body, which is seated at the right hand of the Father. It says we are seated with him in heavenly places in Christ. So where am I? And you can say, well, I'm like right here in this room seated, seated on, a, on a chair. Yeah, physically you are, but spiritually you know where you're at? You've taken on his body. You are called the body of Christ. And therefore you are where he is and you are seated in his body. And he is taken on yours. This is the exchange. This is the covenant. This is what this meal means. He lives in you. He is moved in. Body, blood moves in. You are seated in heavenly places in Christ, and now he is seated on the throne of your life, ruling with your body as his. These are his hands. These are his eyes. This is his mouth. These are his ears. This is his heart. These are his feet. And now this is the body of Christ. Physically, I am here, but spiritually, I am there in him. Physically, he is there, but spiritually, he is here in me. That's the two baptisms. You have the baptism in water. I always point out to the lake because that's where we do our baptizing around here. But that's entering into Christ. Our body is given up. And then we have communion, which is Christ in us. Jonathan took off his robe. Will we? I want you to stick your name into this little passage. And it's quite profound. It truly is. Now, I'm going to, I'll stick my name in just so you get the idea. But the soul of Eric was knit to the soul of Jesus. And Eric loved him as his own soul. Then Eric and Jesus made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Eric took off the robe that was on him and gave it to Jesus. With his armor, even to his sword, and his bow and his belt. Now the old man spoke to Eric and to all his servants, all my members of my body, that they should kill Jesus. 
But Eric delighted greatly in Jesus. So Eric told Jesus, saying, My old man seeks to kill you, therefore please be on your guard until morning and stay in secret place and hide. So Eric said to Jesus, Whatever you yourself desire, I will do it for you. So Eric made a covenant with the house of Jesus, saying, Let the Lord require at the hands of Jesus' enemies. So Eric arose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for Jesus because his old man had treated him shamefully. This is a picture of something quite beautiful, and that is the one who enters into covenant. He is passionate about the reputation, the preservation, the person of the beloved. He's passionate. The covenanters, those that bear the love of Jonathan. In Scottish history, we have a group of people called the covenanters, but that's us. We're the covenanters. We are the Jonathans. We are the ones who enter in, who yield up our throne and enter into a covenant with Jesus Christ. So this is a statement about the Scottish covenanters, which is a whole study in and of itself. It's beautiful. Scotland in 1638. They were terribly in earnest, speaking of the covenanters, the Jonathans that have yielded their throne. They were terribly in earnest. The passion that was in them, like all great passions, refused to be divided. Their idea possessed them with a force and a fullness to which we find few parallels in history. It haunted their sleep. It awoke them in, with them in the morning. It walked like their shadow with them to business or to pleasure. It became the breath of their nostrils and the soul of their soul. Is that Jesus to you? Has he become the breath of your nostrils and the soul of your soul? Is that what a covenant relationship with Jesus Christ has brought you? You see, when you're well married, when you enter into a covenant with your spouse, you will gladly die for them. You will gladly suffer. And there's no greater issue in your soul than when, than when your spouse is harmed. Well, how much more? How much greater? We should bear such a passion. We should be considered the most earnest on earth for we have entered into covenant with the Most High God. The love for Jonathan. Remember the name of this, this, this message? The love of Jonathan. You see, what shouldn't be missed in this, is, it's not just a study of the love of Jonathan, which is us, but it's that which moves a Jonathan, and that's the love for him. You see, in our situation, Jesus first loved us. Our love is a response to the great love of heaven that has condescended to wash our feet, that has basically held out his robe in a naked position on the cross. And he said, please, take my garment and wear it. That has been cut open in a symbol of covenant and the life of our God has poured out upon us. He says, come beneath my flood waters and be washed and cleansed. I give you my purity I take on your sin. Whoa! The love for Jonathan. What moves us is the love that God has for us. He has come and demonstrated a love. There's a whole thing going around in modern Christianity about the fact that a loving God wouldn't have a hell. Uh, <clears throat> a loving God would have a hell because that's the just punishment for everything that stands against him. It's sin. It is what is opposite of him, and he has to be separated from it. And anyone who sides with sin, anyone who refuses such love and sides with the old man 
is separated from God. See, what do we miss when people make such statements? It sounds noble and it sounds very romantic that God of such love would never allow for a hell or anyone to go there. They miss the cross. You see, the love of God has been expressed. The way has been opened. The side into Christ has been made available. And now we as the covenanters plead and we share. The side is open. The way is made. Give up your throne. Take off your robe and take on his That is the love of God expressed. That is the full manifestation of the nature of God. Don't expect an empty hell to be the expression of God's love. He has taken off everything and condescended and he holds it out. The door of the ark is open. He built it for you. The rains are coming. Get in. That is the love of God. That is the love of God. Do not miss it. I am distressed for thee, my brother Jonathan. This is David speaking. Very pleasant hast thou been unto me. Thy love to me was wonderful, surpassing the love of women. The love that David and Jonathan share is not of this earth. It is beyond the greatest loves of this earth. So whatever love you understand in the earthly realm, don't try and compare that love with the love that we can have with Jesus Christ. It surpasses. That is the Christophany hidden in this story. Finding the unearthly, otherworldly, heavenly variety of love. Covenanting with God's chosen. The better man awaits your answer. And so here we are finishing with communion. That's the answer. When you take communion, you know what you're saying? Yes. I do. It's a covenant. I take on your robe. I take on your girdle. I take on your sword, your bow. I take on your garments. And to do that, I know what it means. It means giving up my own. It's an exchange. That's what this meal is. It's an exchange. And so I want you to allow this to have gravity and weight in your soul as we enter into it. I do not want you to take it lightly. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you do have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellersley.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.